0: This show is brought to you by the O'Reilly Software Architecture Conference, which takes place from November 4 to November 7 in Berlin. You'll get four days with the brightest minds in the software architecture space. People who work with the same technologies you use and have hard-earned experiences to share. So please check it out. Hi and welcome to a new conversation about software engineering. Today, I'm talking to Sam Newman about insecure transit, security in the microservices world. Sam is an independent consultant and the author of O'Reilly's Building Microservices book. He has worked with a variety of companies in multiple domains around the world, often with one foot in the developer world and another one in operation space. He spent over a decade at ThoughtWorks, then left to join a startup before setting up his own company. Sam, welcome to the Case Podcast.
1: Thank you so much
0: for having me. So um, the, the Case Podcast is a developer podcast. Uh, developers, let's say, rarely do security. Um, why is security now important for developers?
1: Uh, i I think if if you go back say i'm I'm a bit older than I look so I've been doing this for about 20 years now not, not 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 microservices obviously but um being a software developer if you go back say 15 years developers didn't do testing either nor did they worry about usability and interaction design um, and, and often you know 15 years ago 20 years ago we didn't do databases either you'd hand that off to specialists you'd have a a specialist set of testers a specialist DBA, a specialist person to your UI and UX. And and over time we've realized that there's definitely a role for specialists. And a lot of those fields I've mentioned are quite deep and have a lot of extremely important expertise. But there is some general awareness of those areas that's beneficial for a developer to have. So developers have taken on more burden of, you know, we may we make our own database changes now a lot of the time. We we do our own testing, we think a bit more about how we pull in the creative interaction design aspects into the work we do, um, and part of that has been driven by shipping software more quickly. If you, you know, you don't don't have these silos and these handoffs, you can ship software more quickly. But also, part of it is realizing that by building these ideas into how we think about building and writing our software, we end up with better results. And I think security is no different. I think it's a big, deep field with lots of complexity inside it. But there's also an awful lot of things under the umbrella of application security which absolutely I would consider is like low-hanging fruit. Um, Like I I wouldn't expect every developer to be able to, for example, uh, diagnose a really slow query in a complex query planner uh, on a database tool, but I would expect every developer to probably work out how to do an insert statement. And I think with security, it's the same sort of thing. It's like there was was absolutely some easy stuff that I think most developers can be aware of and ultimately, you know, we have to recognize that a lot of the way we treat how we think about application security is it doesn't work. I mean, we often see it as a transactional activity. We do it once off. We we do all of our development. Then we think at the end we can just put a bit of security in. Um, and we sort of realized over time that didn't work well for interaction design. It didn't work well for, you know, um, uh, testing either. So um, I think it's also just part of that spirit of trying to pull more of those activities into our delivery cycles so that we can ship software more quickly and more efficiently.
0: Mm. So the, what are the, the, the low hanging fruits, um, because I you know for me, security is very hard. I'm always talking to the expert. The only thing I you know I'm able to do sort of is you know spring security or something. Um, the rest I give to the experts. Uh, what what are low hanging hanging fruits?
1: Well, um, I, I guess the first thing I'd say is that in general, I don't I find that developers aren't always very good at assess uh, I, I, they don't necessarily have a good understanding about where the risks are with any piece of software. And so I think we often just assume it's very, very complicated and we reach for complicated solutions. Um, the reality is there are just some very, very small basic things that you need to think about. Um, uh, passwords, very, very simple idea, passwords. Uh, it's, it's not, yes, yeah, how do you store passwords for your own system that you've built? But it's also how do you store passwords for your the accounts that you use? Um, it's amazing to me. I still go to these conferences and I ask this question of like the audiences and I still find more people are using a password manager for the passwords of their own personal accounts than are using a password manager for their work accounts. When you look at a lot of the evidence and the research into this, a large amount of data breaches occur because either credentials are weak and easy guessed or because they're stolen. And if you use a password manager, you can drastically limit the chance of those happening because, you know, you can use unique uh, passwords for each account. That's a very, very basic example. And I can show you multiple public-facing websites that still require, have very bizarre requirements around how your passwords are generated. You still get some that don't allow you, for example, to paste a password in, which means password managers don't work. Um, you still go to websites that give you very short password lengths, um, which is crazy. There's no reason for that. Um, and so that, that's just one very, very simple example is what are you doing with your own passwords? Are you making sure you're... Uh, and then the second thing is like credentials. When you generate a credential to allow someone to, say, access a database, are you giving out everyone the same set of credentials? That increases the chance that those credentials could be misused. It also makes it more problematic if you have to revoke them. Uh, that's a very another very simple example. Um, and probably the, the other one that I've been really banging on about a lot recently is just patching. Um, I think a lot of developers have assumed that patching will be done by somebody else, someone in the operations team will handle patching for me. And and, and there's, there's two problems with that. The first is that often the environment in which we're deploying our software is a lot more complicated now. So it's not like we're deploying our software straight onto, onto a sort of bare metal, and therefore the patching we worry about is just the operating system level patches. We're often deploying into a Docker container, which contains an operating system that's deployed onto a virtual machine, which in turn is deployed onto a physical machine. And you've got multiple different layers at which to think about, are, are all those layers being patched and updated frequently? And even if the answer is yes, they are, still one of the biggest sources of, of, uh, of risk is actually the vulnerabilities in the, app, in the developer dependencies, the developer third party libraries that we put in. Um, and I think I talked in my, my recent uh, Institute Transit talk about um, Equifax in the US. The massive Equifax breach was caused by an unpatched version of struts being used. And that was a developer completely under the control of the developer. All they needed to have done is gone in and increased and bumped the revision of that library when those patches were released. And you would have stopped the um, illegal access of 168 million uh, records containing everything from passwords to... Date of birth to you know everything else. It was uh, there are lots of things that are under our control. Yeah, Um,
0: we will dive into passwords, credentials, patching um, a bit later, so we we can dive a little bit deeper. Um, The the, the podcast is about microservices uh, security. Um, What's the difference between microservices security and
1: monolith security i think part of the somewhat on some of the low hanging fruit i stuff i just talked about there a lot of it is about a scaling issue uh you know if you struggle to manage you know when you move to a microservice environment uh, architecture you've got many more processes many more virtual machines that need to be controlled and configured and managed that means if you want to be handling things like rolling out or revoking credentials that might be a manual process with a monolith, but it won't scale with to a microservice environment. That might cause you to look towards tools that allow you to automate some of those activities. Can you, for example, get a good automatic visibility, uh, uh, automated view of the patch level of all the things you're running? Again, with a manual, you know, with a monolith, you might be able to do that manually every you know, couple of months. Maybe you just going to apply those changes yourself, um i mean think about something as simple as deploying a, uh, a a monolith as a virtual machine or a monolith as a as a as a as a as a, as a even maybe a dockerized monolith when as you it's the monolith that's where all your code is you make a change to that you deploy that you push it out so every single time you do a build every single time you single do you do a deploy that's an opportunity for you to uh, rev the vis- the versions of things you're using that's an opportunity for you to automatically Update to the latest signed-off Spring Boot libraries, or whatever else it might be, and to apply the operating system patches as part of that deployment process. With a microservice architecture, you will find situations where, you know, if you create a microservice that does one thing and does it well, whatever whatever that means, there's a much higher chance that that service would have been a change may have been made to that six months ago, nine months ago, twelve months ago, and it's just sitting there running. And no one's looked at it no one's no one's going to need to change it because there'd be no reason to but that effectively is something which it has not been patched so you have this issue of on the one hand visibility or does my architecture have vulnerabilities and then when you do need to make changes like you know incrementing revisions uh revoking credentials you have that scale problem and so typically you start looking for uh technology in that space that can help you in those areas and and those that technology might be helpful in the monolithic environment, but if you don't have it in a microservice environment, you really are um, uh, storing up some really nasty problems.
0: Mm, yeah. So talking about uh, passwords and credentials in a microservices world, you said you you have to automate um, changing passwords and uh, and credentials. How do you do that? How how can I automate changing passwords? Well,
1: example? so. It's probably important. So, when I talk about these things, I tend to separate the passwords of your end users from credentials that you might use for uh, you know, credentials and what we'd call a secret inside the system. So, I, I tend to bucket these differently. So, things like what is the username and password for the database that my service wants to talk to? Um, Uh, or maybe what are the, yeah, and those sorts, and uh, things like, you know, your Amazon API keys. So I think that those are the sort of your internal, almost administration credentials. And I separate that from your customer-facing passwords. Um, The reason is because your risk profiles are quite different. And and, and and, and the the operating processes and procedures around that are quite different. As an example, with something like public-facing passwords, it is actually not good practice to require people to change their password frequently, because actually evidence has shown that what that does is it, it it sort of you end up training your end users to be vulnerable to phishing attacks. So if you look at the advice from things like um, NIST uh, in the US or the UK Cyber Security Centre, they actively advise against automatically requiring people to change passwords on a, on a regular basis. Instead, they recommend that you make use of systems that detect for uh, password and username combinations that may have appeared in other breaches, and then use that as a trigger to tell people to change their password. So Troy Hunt's got a great article all about this, which I'll share with you, and you can put it in the in the show notes. Um, so that's sort of the public facing stuff.
0: Sorry, how uh, how can I actually implement that? Is there a you know a public API yes. for? Have- In Pond or something?
1: Yeah, so have I has got a really good uh, public uh, facing API that you can integrate into your system. So it allows you basically to say, does this username and hash appear in one of the breaches? And if it does, you can then email those customers to say, look, we don't think we've been hacked, but we know that we think your username and password appeared in another breach. It looks like you may have used the same password for that site as this site. Therefore, somebody could potentially use those credentials to gain access to your account here. And we, and we, and because of that, we have required you to change your password. And so I've had a couple of those emails because years ago I used to be had bad practice around these things. So you're already mm. starting to see companies doing those kinds of, act- carrying out those kinds of activities. Um, so again, Troy is the person, all, he's all over this. So the um, there's lots of us, ask- he's some really great pieces on how you make acts, how you use the API how that works uh, um, and, uh, and sort of how, how you can make use of all that sort of stuff. And uh, uh, he's able to, I think that's pretty, I'm pretty sure I was right in saying that's free of charge. I think that's largely because uh, I think Cloudflare ended up picking up an awful lot of um, uh, Troy's costs because they host a lot because he's, he's done some very smart things about how he's built that system. Um, so that would be like, like wow. you know, straight away, it'd be my first port of call if you're interested in that stuff um, uh, to understand how to implement that programmatically on on. on you know, for, for your, again, if you're public facing users, um, credentials are kind of a different uh, thing because the risk profile is a bit different. So if you're an end user of my application and someone gets hold of just your user and password, it's only your data that is potentially impacted. Um, obviously, if an administrator password gets stolen, then you have significant issues. So, um, you know, in those systems, you, you treat those credentials a bit differently. You're very careful about limiting scope. Uh, and often you make things kind of quite, a uh, uh, time, uh, uh, time limited, uh, and, and the, so, so the software about that can be somewhat more complicated, but, uh, again, it is something that can be, uh, that can be automated if needed.
0: Mm, and, and how do you, so one question is how do you automate it? And, um, the other thing is if you automate, then, you know, it, the, the, the the credentials, they have to stand somewhere. So yes. they, they can be in a file, for example, in, in a repository.
1: So how, how, how do I do that? Yeah. I, I mean, the first thing is to say they can be in a file in a repository. Um, you, you can absolutely do that. If it's in a file in a repository which has extremely tight control, as in there's only a small number of people that can access it, that might not be the worst work thing to do in the world. Uh, And certainly, I've worked in environments, um, especially where you're implementing separation of controls, where only a small subset of the people that actually uh, carry out the production deployments have access to, for example, a source code repository, which contains the production passwords in it, but only they have access to it. And the deployment process is something they're in control of. So it's not the stupidest idea of the world. It's more about limiting who can see those things. Um, Okay. Really, what it comes down to is... Somebody needs, as you point out, let's take the example of a, of a username and password for a database. So I've got a service instance. I need a username and password for that. I need to get that from somewhere. Well, where can I get that from? Well, because we want to be able to change it independent of the life cycle of the application itself, we're not gonna hard code it in code. So it's got to be in a configuration somewhere. So how can I read it from configuration? you kind of got three options really. You can have the application itself reach out to some central service and say, please give me my credentials. And that's the sort of thing that you can do with, uh, I mean, effectively, that's how the secret systems work for, um, like in in Kubernetes and stuff, which is effectively OpenShift and the like sort of uh, piggyback on. Uh, You could reach out to some central system like a secret store. Um, The other two options really are are kind of reading from a configuration file or reading from environment variables. Um, And so... Environment variables is not something I ever tend to do because I'm never quite sure about how safe that is. And I get conflicting advice. Um, But every application is able to read things from text files. And uh, that's, again, it's not a terrible idea to read that information from a text file as long as you limit who can have access to that text file. So if I've got that, so if I'm reading it from a configuration file that's running in the same maybe container instance as my running process, then for someone to read those credentials, they've got to have gained access to that running container. If they've gained access to that running container, I potentially already have other problems to deal with. Um, The issue, I think, is what you're touching on is, if it's in a text file and I need to change it, how on earth do I change it? Um, And that's the problem. So if we just maybe put credentials off to one side and just talk about normal configuration, for example, uh, the log level of your application, the state of a feature toggle, now, um, this is what a lot of people will use, systems like etcd or, or console, or historically may have used systems like um, uh, Zookeeper for. These are centralized you know, cluster-based software, which your server, your computer, reaches out to your service, says, goes to Zookeeper, console, etcd, and, and say, can you give me this value? What is what is the log level I'm supposed to be using? Um, certainly, I, I don't know those systems as well, but so with console, you can also say, if this value changes let me know so i could change my log level my application could dynamically say oh i'm supposed to be logging it at, a, new, at a, a more detailed level that's what i'm going to do now for me to do that i've got to change the application and changing the application is a, is a big pain uh, secondly of course i've got to have this centralized software now running uh, which is another administrative burden although again it's not massively difficult to be honest with you um, now That's one side of it. The second problem here, of course, is that, uh, you know, we don't want that information. That information is often sensitive, so how do I restrict access to it? Now, um, Console has a really kind of cool program, like a sister program almost, called uh, Console Template. So what Console Template does is it just updates text files based on values that are stored inside Console. So the nice thing about that, then, is your application doesn't need to know that Console exists. It just needs to know about its text file and reading really stuff from text files is easy. And so when console template runs, it will just dynamically update those text files with new values as they change in console. So that's one example of how you can push out new configuration. Um, so that's sort of your general configuration problem. And of course, you could equally use something like a puppet or a chef or a salt in their server models to push out those configuration changes. And I've done that in the past as well. Um, it's not very microservicey to use those tools anymore, but uh, uh, that is a possibility. Um, where credentials come into play, things get kind of interesting because, of course, you worry about how that information is stored. You're worried about who can access it. And also, um, you have to deal with like revoking and changing those credentials. And that gets a little bit more tricky. Um, so the system I know the best for this is obviously you've got the secret system, which is inside Kubernetes and has got better, you know, iteration and iteration. The security of it has still improved. Um, but it still does sort of deal with and have problems around uh, things like, um, I, I, still, I might be right in saying, that I still think once you actually get down to it, that the data is still stored in, in plain text inside um, etcd. Um, but uh, HashiCorp's Vault system is a, is a system that basically always sits between you and the storage of that secure credential. Um, when you start your service up, it connects to Vault, it so you have to give it like a key to start up with so it authenticates itself. And then Vault is then able to hand over credentials to that service instance. Um and again, Vault will quite happily using that console template program I mentioned will update text files with those secure values. Uh so you've got kind of some really interesting options. Um the reason I like Vault is it's got some really special, it's got some kind of special tricks up its sleeve. Um, so the traditional idea is I'm going to go and change the password. I've changed the password or I've changed the username and I've hit enter and it's pushed the system out. Um, that kind of requires a human being to do it. Uh, it's much nicer if you just have that happening automatically. So one of the things you can do with vault is you can actually generate time limited credentials for, uh, your password. So it ha- it supports certain database vendors, for example, and when you request can I have a credentials please it actually generates you your own credentials that will only work for a short period of time and it will uh, and so that way someone gets hold of those credentials you're not as vulnerable to someone else gaining access to that stuff um, and actually many people already do this for for amazon API keys I mean it's been um amazon years ago rolled out support to actually uh you can use something like um uh, so one of my clients actually implemented the active uh directory federation with aws and implemented a system it's a very straightforward process actually whereby rather than you having a set of amazon a public and private api keys to to, so you could programmatically control your amazon account instead you would just log in and you would be using your active directory credentials and you would be given a very short-lived api key that would live for 45 minutes at most you would use it to run your automation and if you came back an hour later, those API keys would already have been revoked. And that sort of really mm. keeping those credentials, the, the time to live those credentials really, really short means that even if someone gains access to it, um, you know, they can't do any damage.
0: Yeah. And you mentioned that you get a, an um, like an access key for Vault. Yes. So, so how, how does that work? So I I access Vault with also credentials yeah. and then I get a sh-
1: there's a, there's a couple of different ways of doing this, and um there's been some I think some of this has been improved, certainly in the Kubernetes world. Um, so one of the challenges, of course, is something you're touching on, which is totally valid, is I've got a secure box with all my keys in it. Well, how do I open the box? Well, I've got another key. Effectively, that's what it is, right? So you have to, when you bootstrap a process into Vault, and, and when I when I start so I say I out uh, hello can I have my credentials? I have to give Vault uh, a piece of information. There's no way around that, really. Um, and uh, the way, so I uh, worked for a company called Atomist, um, and the way we did it there was we actually built a system um, that would use, to, when you started up, would basically, uh, we'd give you a very short-lived credential key to, top, to sign up to uh, Vault. We would then do some additional security checks to uh, around that service instance saying, you know, Uh, Have you got the right service name? How are you coming within the cluster and all these other additional checks? There's actually been some really smart stuff done around improving this process of that bootstrapping, kind of making use of the information that you have from the service discovery side of Vault to confirm that these services are who they claim to be. Um, The other thing, of course, you can do to mitigate the impact of those short-lived keys uh, being... So kind of the key, key thing is now I've got a bootstrap, so I've got to have a key to bootstrap my service um again if those keys themselves are also time limited then that also helps the thing we were doing with Atomist is those keys you would as part of the deployment process when a human being pushed that they would effectively regenerate that new key um what i'll do is after that, so there's been some um i found a really interesting open source project that sort of recreated a lot of that work so i gonna try and dig that out and i'll share some links on how you make that and how that bootstrapping process is kind of interesting again oh, okay. the secret here is limiting scope of credential So I wouldn't want the key I give my service to let me see every single piece of information inside Vault. It should just be just my stuff inside Vault. Yeah.
0: Okay. So, um, yeah, wrapping wrapping the let's say the password credentials section up um, with with the three R's of uh, password and credential security. Uh, Can can you can you briefly uh, explain what the three R's Uh
1: Oh yeah, So I mentioned the three R's, which was something that I think it was was Justin from Pivotal came up with a while ago. And he wasn't talking just about credentials, but he was talking about how you deal with things called um, APT or advanced persistent threats. So advanced persistent threats are typically malicious. Well, they are malicious parties that gain access to your system and have access to your system for a long period of time during which they can siphon off more data and more information. Um, and so a, a good example of an advanced persistent threat would be um, there was an attack on the supermarket Target many years ago. So Target a big retailer in the US, and this uh, malware was installed on the uh, electronic point-of-sale systems in, in Target. So when you like took payment, it was memory resident and it would just siphon off all the credit card information. And then for weeks was collecting this stuff and then sort of exfiltrating it out of targets networks. So that's, that's a great example of an advanced persistent threat. And uh, Justin in his, in his piece where he talks about these three R's was saying that kind of one of the easiest ways to deal with those sorts of people is just to, is really kind of to uh, uh, just periodically burn stuff down. So I want to make sure I get the three R's right because I always forget it. Um, so, it's, uh, so his three R's were revoke. So make sure you're rotating credentials frequently. Um, so that means if someone gets hold of a credentials that were six months old, they can't be used anymore. Um, so repair is about constantly keeping your patch levels up, making sure you're always applying the latest and greatest security patches. And repave is basically talking about how when you do a deployment, you actually scorch the machine. It's what we used to call Phoenix servers. So basically, okay. rather than continually applying, you know, incremental changes on top of an existing system, you will sometimes, if somebody's got some malicious software in there, you may not notice that. So, uh, you know, if you've, got, if you've got a machine rootkitted, a lot of the time it will patch itself so deeply into the operating system, you won't even know it's there. And so the repave idea is when you're going to do a new deployment, just burn the whole machine down and start again from scratch. So on Amazon, you might spin up a, a plain known AMI and then build up that machine again to a deployed state. Uh, in a Docker world, it's kind of easier because, effectively, each new deployment of your container instance is, in effect, a new repaved instance.
0: Mm. Yeah. Talk talking about Docker um, images or instances or VMs. Um, let, let's talk a little bit about patching VMs and containers and scheduler managers. Um, when do I have to do that, actually? <laughs> so, or Patrick, <or>,
1: yeah,
0: <laughs> okay. very basically.
1: I, I mean, like, you know, uh, the simple answer is as, as frequently as possible, uh, but, you know, it's how disruptive is that operation going to be? So, um, you know, from Windows, for example, we we'll talk about Patch Tuesday. You have operating system patches that will come out once a week on a Tuesday. And it would be nice to apply those patches as soon as possible. Um, the, it is always a little bit of a trade-off about how much disruption does that process uh, uh, apply. Because if I'm having to redeploy everything every week, well, how do I schedule that? Do I de- redeploy everything? So can I take my whole system down? Well, no. Then you sort of you go into more of the rolling update process. So when I used to do this for Windows machines, for example, we when we had a, a patch cycle, so every week we would do a rolling restart of all of our machines. So we would, they would just you'd be taking a couple of down, there'd be a automatic patching of one those things up again. It gets a little bit more confusing nowadays because we're not just thinking about operating system patches. We've kind of got often multiple levels of operating system to think about. So a lot of the time, it's, it's, you've got to look at your operating system vendor and understand how their patch rollout process works. So when do the new patches get released? Is there a certain day of the week or day of the month when they get released? Um, What is your risk appetite? So do I want to, you know, on Ubuntu, do I subscribe to the more edgy patch updates so I get improvements quicker, but they might have, they might be less reliable, they might be less reliable, or do I wait for them to be fully signed off? Um, And so there can be some variation. This is actually where a good sysadmin will tell you, right? There's actually, where those people really will help you. With something like, uh, uh, it was something like um, developer, patch dependencies, it's, it's a lot more uncertain, because um, the issue then is you often don't know when there's a new version of Spring Boot available. Like often developers know there's a new version of Spring Boot available, or whatever, when there's a cool new feature they want that they hear about, but they're not checking on a daily or weekly basis to see if there's been some new security patches updated. And if you think about the transitive dependencies that you might have inside your application, it's not just what's in your Maven file or your Ruby gems dependencies file. It's, it's, it's the transit properties of all of them. you might have, you know, 50, 100, 300 easy third party bits of code that you're linking into. So understanding when those things have changed or when there are patches available. I, I don't I, I don't know how any human being can be expected to do that. So that's definitely a place where uh, looking for tools to help you is, is, is a very smart move
0: yeah what what tools can i can i use to do that i mean i i remember to, to get back to the you know the the necessity of of, of let's say is it a library third party library supply chain i once heard a talk from i forgot the name but he is like one of the leaders of the rugged software development movement and he basically said that um, he consults banks which Run basically every version Spring ever, you know, brought out, and they they have no clue what's what what's out there, um, yeah. which um, security holes are still in the in the system, and um, that you that you can easily solve that with a nice um, uh, uh, supply chain for libraries. But I, I actually I cannot quite remember. How to do this? So, how do I keep my libraries up to date all the yeah. time?
1: Um, I think the if we talk really, a, so there are a bunch of specific efforts in this space uh, to do this with certain specific technology stacks. So, a good example, and I'm not a Node developer, so I'm gonna double check I'm getting this right, but a, an example of one that tried doing it specifically for um, for Node is NPM check. So npm check, you can run that on your, your node dependencies, and it will say there are newer versions available, and you can build that command line program into your build process. So the, these efforts were a little bit sporadic. They were like people doing it for particular technology stacks. Um, nowadays, the tool I point people at is um, a tool called SNYK. So that's pronounced, so it's spelled S-N-Y-K. So SNYK is not free. Um, it's a commercial service. Um, What they do is that they curate a huge database of sort of third party open source, not just open source libraries, but libraries, and they look at um, where vulnerabilities are detected and they match those to version numbers. They then, what they can do is they can scan the dependency files that you have and say, well, based on your transitive dependencies, these libraries have vulnerabilities in them and they can be updated by using these newer versions. Um, and the nice thing about that process is not only can you integrate that into your build, so you could actually fail a build if versions need to be incremented, they can even send you a pull request saying, please update these new versions. Um, and I think the really interesting thing is it's just, they it do such a great job of making it very usable. Um, the real work I think is under the hood, to be honest with you, it's building that database of the vulnerabilities across all the tech stacks they support. So. You know, they support Java and .NET and Node and Ruby and uh, lots of different platforms now. Um, and, and so that's a, from a developer point of view, is is, is that for me just is it becomes like a no-brainer on a new project for me, which is this, yes, mm-hmm. it costs you a couple mm-hmm. hundred bucks a month. But, you know, if you're doing commercial software development and you can't find it in your way to spend that much money on this service, it seems kind of you know, we don't really care about security then. Now, the one, yeah. the one yeah. thing to say about that, of course, is that's on the developer side. It, you still need to have visibility in what's actually running. Because I can say I updated my dependency files, but have I actually deployed it? Uh, and so what do I actually have running out there in my infrastructure? Um, so SNCC are doing more work in terms of what's actually running in my real environment. Um, they've done some stuff in the space, for example. They can do this for running functions. Um, for example, on AWS and Lambda and things like that. Um, But there are other tools that you might want to look at to say what's actually running out there in my production environment. Although I think I've updated and applied these patches, operating systems and elsewhere, have I actually done that work? And that's Mm -hmm. the other kind of half of the world, which is once it's in prod, what's going on in prod? Are there things I should be aware of there?
0: Nice yeah I, I I heard the name of the tool um and I think you know my current project I, I wrote it down without actually knowing what it means, but you know i um I think it was your talk uh, at uh, i I attended last year, so i I thought okay i have to have to
1: look at it, it it really is one of those i mean i you know I, I know guy who's the CEO and I, I'm friendly with him and, but i you know I wouldn't the reason I'm friendly with him is because the tool's really good, and it's taken a hard problem and they've done a great job around usability on it. It really, really has. Um, and I'm really interested to see how they take a lot of that work into the into the more, the, because the, as developers themselves are operating more, they're running the systems more, I think they need tools that are familiar and helpful to developers. Um, yeah. And so certainly the things that that they're doing, hopefully if they can take that ease of use into the production environment, I think that will help. Um, I think the other thing as well when you get into production is that actually as we're running more containerized workloads, that does help us a little bit because of the way the Docker file system works. opens up some really interesting uh, possibilities for, for sort of scanning of things and looking for common potential vulnerabilities. So, um, you know, you've got tools like Aquasec now, which is a really good way of looking at your container images and the operating systems running as containers and doing that in a production setting, which I think are really powerful. Which, again, are really kind of uh it gives that visibility right it's saying this is what's actually going on And I think that becomes as a really you know developers can't just think okay I've done my bit and then hope is going to be handled by somewhere else um, so I think it's about sort of really having visibility all the way across as you pointed out the supply chain uh to see where what what where we are with all these things
0: yeah. Uh, talk, talking about containers, so um, so what I know is you can, you know, offer a secure base image mm-hmm. and the other, which which can be scanned for and, and updated. And, and the other thing, if I understand you correctly, is um, checking the behavior of containers during runtime.
1: Yeah, we, you've kind of got two things there as well, because, you know, your base image that you have is secure today and you deploy a container based on that based image today, and as far as you're concerned, that's up to date and patched. But if that's been running for six months and no one's rebuilt that container image and deployed a new version of it, that thing that would have been considered to be good is now probably not good. It's had six months where it could have been patched. So there's kind of that process of it may have been fine today. Is it going to be fine in the future? Um, as a, you know, you can actually see that if you go to the public Docker Hub, I don't know if you can still see it, but if you went to like the official Ubuntu images, the latest, you know, the, you know, you go to the official Ubuntu images for say, you know, feisty or whatever else it might be, you will see loads of known vulnerabilities in those images, and that's not because mm-hmm. they know any uploaded buggy software, it's because after that version was released, they found defects in it. So if you're still building from those, it doesn't mean you're necessarily protected against that stuff. So something like um, Clair, uh, which is sort of an open source tool, like created by CoreOS, uh, or I think you know there are better commercial tools. I think and I mentioned Aqua. They can actually look at those containers and say, "You're running this. This layer is inside your container. This layer has these potential vulnerabilities. This may therefore be something that you want to change or, or address." Um, I think the thing you also are talking about is the behavior of those containers. Um, and that's something which I, I space. I think needs more work. Um, but again, stuff like um, Aqua is, is the only tool I really know well in this space that, that that can help you look at the behavior of those containers. It's not something I've used in Anger, but I, I know the team there. Um, mm. the, and, and that for me is, is quite synonymous with uh, security modules in Linux, where you effectively say, you know, this thing is running. When this thing runs you know, I would expect it to be doing these things. I would expect it to be opening these ports. I would expect it to be sending this kind of traffic. If it does anything outside of that, assume something has gone crazy and shut it down. Um, mm. And that's yeah. something that Linux mm. security modules allow you to do on a much smaller scope. Um, and so I think there's a lot of, uh, you know, they, they, though that that's the kind of work I know the Aqua team are looking at and, and other vendors as well in this space. Uh, the idea being that effectively you've got something running in your container orchestration platform that is saying, I expect Sam's, you know, invoicing service to do these things. It's operating in a way I'm not sure it should be. So I'm just going to alert someone or close the whole thing off.
0: Mm. So um, th- this tool, the, the, the Aqua tool, for example, is it is it something I I um pro- probably let's say a platform team must install the scanner or something like that on on the platform like kubernetes and each let's say service needs to have a configuration which uh, the tool is scanning and then observing if the you know if the expected behavior is met is is that how it works
1: uh, well yeah so talking about the the tools kind of a class ultimately, you need to tell if you want to alert when the behavior of the application is unexpected, you kind of need to tell it what expected is. Now, I do know mm. some of these systems can learn from your behavior in a way. But ultimately, you need to say, this is what I expect you to do. And this is how I expect yeah, you to yeah. behave. Um, yeah, but, but that's
0: basically the team developing the service is providing that information but the let's say the 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 tool setup is more something for a platform team.
1: well the, the so for me, it is all about sort of how you think about the ownership of your service, and there's lots of different models. So uh, you know for some teams, you know if if you're the, if you're the team that is uh, writing your software, configuring your Docker file, writing your Kubernetes pod specs, pushing that deployment into your Kubernetes platform via OpenShift or whatever else. In that environment where you effectively as a developer own the whole life cycle of that, then I might expect a platform team to say, this is the software that's going to be running, that's checking it. So they their platform team might be responsible for making sure that those subsystems are running in the same way they might be responsible for making sure that, I don't know, my console or vault ring is running, the yeah, cluster is running. But I would still be as a developer responsible for coming up with that configuration if that makes sense, because I built the application, I know how that works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. makes yeah. Totally yeah. sense. Obviously, yeah. other models you might have still work in an environment where you just write the code in hand it off to operations team who write all that stuff for you. And in that environment, they would own that stuff. Um, mm-hmm. uh, now, I, I do know. You know, I'm, I'm going to be very honest now that uh, I've had conversations with how a lot of this stuff is done, and I know the theory. I I've done this stuff with Linux security modules. I don't currently know the state of the art on on sort of how on this more sort of live smart identification for containers specifically, um, but this type of software is not brand new. I mean, you can look at tools like uh, uh, Tripwire from years ago, for example, which are, are the kind of more hard you know heavy high end security tools which would be run by security professionals, where they'll come and run this stuff on your network and say, "Here's what's running." Um, UpGuard is a really great tool in this space. You know they. They can run this over your network. They, they'll they use this, you know, pen testers will use these sorts of tools. Um, There's mm. still value in having specialists with, with expertise and maybe tool chains that are much more complicated that give you that extra level of uh, safety. Um, so, you know, I think it's quite appropriate, for example, to say your application delivery team is responsible for making sure the software is patched, Rolling those updates out frequently, understanding if there's anything under their control they can update, operating process. I might still say that every quarter we're going to have an external firm come and do penetration testing as well, like as a safety net. Mm. The key thing is though, it's a safety net. You're relying, you know, because you know you're relying on them to catch you if you fall, but you don't want them to be the only way to catch these things.
0: Yeah, yeah um the, the the we haven't talked about the base image um a lot so the what is actually a secure base image
1: um well you've got uh it, it can it depends on what you what you kind of mean by secure so um you know in terms of a base image that's just you know as an operating system that I'm building my docker container off the back of so a good example. Normally, people would would try and have their base image being some kind of trusted image. So you would start from a point of view of going, to, "This is a no, an image from a known person, and I trust that person." And then there's, "I trust that this image is the one that they gave me." And there's there's a whole bunch of stuff you can look into there uh, around things like notary and how some of the the different the very different yeah, there's, there's a, a number of different container registries out there that that offer differing levels of trust about Making sure you get the right image. You know, an image itself, it, it can only really be beyond that only secure is in as much as has it got software with known problems on it. And uh, yeah, mm. there's still an awful lot to be said. You can still take an, a secure. You know, I can still take a perfectly great, you know, lovely secure, up to date and patched Ubuntu image, and then when I configure it myself. I could open it for guests, no password access to anybody who wants to connect to any port. So, you know, it's it's uh, a lot of the devil is really in what you then do on that on top. I mean, if you think about you roll your own Docker file, you're the one opening up the ports, you're the one creating those users, Um, and so if you go to a trusted operating system vendor to provide to give you that base image, they're going to do their best they can do. Um, It's normally you that can screw it up. and, and to be fair, like, there is sort of this idea that, you know, most software that I build on tends to do a good job of being secure by default. Um, like, by default, for example, when I create an Amazon account or I spin up an EC2 instance on Amazon, I can't talk to it. I can't even find it. I have to explicitly say this thing is available. And, you know, that's that's – kind of a bit of a mindset that's secure by default, whatever you build on top of. Some software isn't always as good as that. I know that there's been historically issues with uh, Mongo, for example, that when you want, want launch a Mongo instance, by default, it gives hmm. you uh, a completely unprotected port that allows you to query directly the Mongo database. And it's good practice yeah, yeah. to close that port off, as you'd expect, but a lot of people don't so they don't realize it's there. And so people have actually, there are actually people who run, um at Google search is to find unprotected Mongo data. Um, so it, it, it's always understanding what you're building on top of what actually it's giving you in terms of security. Um, mm. Again, you know, from a Docker container point of view, the ports are only open if you've opened them in the Docker file in, in your Docker file. Um, yeah. Yeah.
0: Okay. Thanks. I'm um, now switching to To something else, Um, authentication and authorization. Um, Maybe just as a starter, you know, could you briefly explain what that actually means? (laughs) Of
1: course. Um, So authentication. If you think about it from a a human being point of view, to start off with, um, me as a human being when I log into a website, the authentication process is me saying. I am Sam, and here is a password to prove to you that I really am Sam. And so the server receives that username, it receives that password, it hashes that password, compares the hashes and say, yes, you've given me the correct password, you are Sam, you have been authenticated as being Sam. Authorization is then what is Sam allowed to do? Uh, in a microservice environment, we have to think about authentication also of a computer talking to another computer. Well, you might, you know, some people embrace this idea of implicit trust, which say that kind of effectively two processes talking to each other over network within the same network, they can just talk however they want because I'm assuming that if you can run a process inside my network, you must be trusted. Increasingly, people are moving away from that and they're now expecting that when a process talks to another process inside your network, there's got to be some kind of authentication. So mm-hmm. I go, I'm, I'm the finance service. I make a call to the warehouse service and the warehouse service needs to, will, will want to know, are you really who you say you are? Which is the authentication piece. And then the second piece is that is what are you actually allowed to do? And so one of the you know you probably heard of mutual TLS, which is where you've got both client and server side certificates over HTTP, uh, for example. Um, so in that situation, you effectively get that authentication piece. And with mutual TLS, I know the server I'm talking to is who the server claims to be, and the server knows the client is who the client claims to be. So that, that handles your sort of sort of process to process authentication piece. And yeah.
0: Yeah. Maybe we talk about mutual TLS uh, in a second, um, uh, because first, you know, first things first, <laughs> or at least uh, uh, you know, from my point of view. Um, um, so, so now we know what authentication authorization is, and um, you know, for for me, that's you know, it's kind of easy um, when it comes to. To a monolith mm-hmm. you know we use something like spring security you know just to mention one thing and then we implement it in our uh in our uh, monolith and you know everything's fine so but but in in a microservices world to me that's you know is a bit tricky because implementing that stuff is is hard and then you have to you know Distribute that code over all kinds of microservices, and all you know, if you use Spring Security, it only works with the you know Spring-based microservice, but not with a Node.js one. So, what can I do in a in a microservices world to implement um, authentication and authorization?
1: Well, if we think about this just from the point of view of putting humans off to one side and just thinking about this in terms of one service talking to another service. Um, You you have to have, like in the same way with the humans, I authenticate myself with the monolith by providing providing a password, using a password. And that authenticates me with the monolith. And then everything's great. As you say, it's all within a single process. Everything's nice and nice and easy. Now I've got the situation where the finance service is going to go and call to the warehouse service. Um, I need authentication there as well. Typically, I need authentication. You've got such a a whole load of different protocols out there by which when I make a call, I can convince you that I am who I claim to be. Uh, uh, If you think about what happens when you say use um, AWS or Azure, when you maybe write a piece of code, you provide uh, your API key as part of an input to that program. And that is actually used to generate a hash in the headers sent to the AWS API gateway. And it says, oh, you provided a valid API key. I know that's a valid API key, and I'm going to let you make that call happen. And you could do exactly the same thing in terms of one process talking to another process. So in other words, I can use a private key to generate a, a hashed request. I can send that hashed request to a downstream server. That server can validate that request really came from you by just doing simple public key type stuff. So that's a simple example of how you might go about doing some authentication. Now, i say there's, lots, there's not just one way of doing that. There are different protocols out there to, to handle those sorts of things. Um, that sort of process I outline is what's often called HMAC. Um, now, the, the, the other problem you, you touched on is, well, I've got lots of processes that have got to have lots of code to handle that, and that's a legitimate concern. So, uh, you know, what, this is one of the reasons why some organizations will standardize on certain technology stacks, because that they know that if you spin up a service in their known technology stacks, that they will be able to handle that authentication in a face seamless way. Uh, you know, famously, for example, Netflix. I don't know if that's still the case, but they used to have this a rule that if you wanted to talk between two services, if two processes wanted to communicate over a remote network, they both they had to be talking the JVM on both ends because they knew they could use all their shared libraries that did all the stuff for you. Um, nowadays actually things like service meshes might show us a future where we effectively can share code to do these common concerns and do that in a heterogeneous technology stack Um, so that's that's the that's sort of part of this Uh, so a a great example would be mutual TLS. now something else you can do to mitigate this is actually if you think about something uh like authenticate effectively a a server client authentication scheme that is certificate based sometimes you can have that handled for you by effectively middleware you know think about um having a a sort of uh, gateway between the client and server in that relationship um, so if you're going through say the azure gateway or the, uh, uh, the amazon api gateway uh they can often handle i don't know about amazon but i know azure can do this if you want to do something like um the mutual tls which can effectively give you authentication that is something you can now offload to the gateway. In the same way that we used to terminate HTTPS at our load balances, we can do that at the API gateway. So, devil is in the detail of how those API gateways are implemented and configured.
0: So, basically, once I pass the gateway, um, all services behind the gateway do not actually
1: check if. Yes. I don't know. Exactly. I'm... If you're going to terminate, that's exactly what happens. And again, that might be an appropriate, um, that may well be appropriate. Again, I sort of touched on this at the beginning that we often as developers, we're not always good at assessing risk. One of the things I, I didn't really talk about is it's often really useful to actually go through a, a threat modeling exercise where you think, what are my, what am I actually concerned about? Because um, often I think we react and we go to, I want this technology without understanding what it is it gives us. So what are we really worried about? You know, um, it might be, you might say, I'm worried because when we're talking about this stuff within your perimeter, what we're protecting ourselves against is somebody gaining access to our network and being able to make direct requests as services on that network or masquerading as a service on that network. Is that really the risk you have? If that is, then this is the kind of thing you need to worry about. You could mitigate that risk by having effectively DMCs. So you could segment that network into different pieces. And so that within each network segment, you might have implicit trust, but you might require some additional level of trust between it. Uh, and so there are lots of different models of where you can approach this. This is sort of getting a little bit more into the space where you want to get some advice um, from a security professional. So you have so many different options here.
0: Hmm. Yeah, one option I also got to know was um, having, let's say, a generic proxy in front of every service. So, in you know, in that system, services were based on all kinds of technologies. Um, but each, let's say, each service has something like an authentication proxy in front, which is basically checking if you're allowed to access certain resources or not um, yeah that turned out to 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 work pretty pretty well and i think you know the the difference between a proxy and a service mesh is not so so huge
1: if i understood service the meshes one correctly the big difference is latency so typically if you've got say a generic set of machines if you've got a set of machines that are working as a proxy first thing is you're going to have to require that all communication between services goes via that proxy if you want the proxy mm. to handle that now that proxy is going to be a set of machines that that's going to add an extra network hop and so effectively if i've got say service a calling b so it's b calling so it's c so in c calling so it's d and now in between each of those calls i have to go via this third party this third proxy I'm effectively from a just a pure network calls, I'm doubling the number of network calls that I'm operating. So that's the yeah, one concern. Yeah. The reason the service meshes sidestep this is because with service meshes, you effectively are talking, it's not that dissimilar sort of from a logical point of view, it's more the physical deployment topology that changes this. With a service mesh, that proxy instance, if you're thinking like that, is going to be running on the same physical machine as your microservice instance. And so the communication with that proxy is going to be happening over a local network, effectively over a local single machine network. And so you won't experience the same kind of latency issues that you had before. It's a much more, it's a conceptually, you can see it as the same proxy idea, but it's a much more distributed proxy. There are some other nuances around service spaces as well, but that's sort of the one difference. Now, if you actually don't have that many situations where you have long service call chains going on, you may have a small number of services, or your, the number of hops you go through to carry out any operation are quite short. You indeed may not see any real impact by having that generic proxy in the mix. But as your architecture becomes more fine grained, you may have more significant challenges. Um, I do also know that at least one of the commercial vendors in this space, when they were trying to sell one of my uh, clients on this gateway, When we got down to their architecture, we realized that their generic proxy was actually hosted on their own infrastructure. So that meant every call that we made actually went via their API gateway that was in a different data center, a different part of the country. And so the (laughs) latency impact there was horrendous. It was so bad that to the point where one of my colleagues started referring to their service as a latency as a service. It's like we paid money to inject latency into our system. again those things may not be an issue for you if you don't have very uh, tight latency requirements um, uh, but but it, it, for some people it does become significant which is why the service meshes kind of have a different architecture
0: mm. yeah in the, the 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 project i mentioned or the system i mentioned um, there the, the, we had those uh, re- requirements uh, but the the proxy was running on the same pot so, you know, whenever you deploy a service, you also have to deploy the, the proxy with yes. the service. So it, it was still... And, and in a...
1: fact, that's before that we had these things called service meshes, you know, the people that wrote things like Envoy Proxy, that's exactly the architecture they came up with. I mean, all the service mesh really is, is a way of controlling mm. all of those local proxies that are sitting on the same machines as your, as your services, right? So it's a very sensible approach. Um, it, some organizations actually, are coming back to the library idea, the proxy idea is nice because you can effectively get code reuse so functionality reuse across lots of instances it can be useful with a polyglot environment the downside is there might be a latency impact i've certainly spoken to at least one i think i can name because i think i've actually this is a public case study so i um you know i, I, I was i think it's changed folks at the soundcloud about this where they say a lot of their some of their authentication authorization code although it could be in a proxy they actually had it operating inside their actual service uh, their pro you know the actual running inside their scala service that was on the edge service because it reduced network hops and so they didn't want a generic proxy and they actually said the trade-off for us around reducing latency was worth having to deal with the fact it was in a shared library we had in code um again i think uh, to your Mm. point local proxies have changed the game significantly on this i think the challenge it's just that although the quality of those proxies, like the Envoy proxy is fantastic, the quality, I think, and the general maturity of the service meshes is still not fantastic. Um, like it's been taking a long time for them to mature. And I think well, you know, we've got a 1.0 Vistio, for example, but they're still iterating a lot of some of the core concepts. And I think you'll see, um, if you look at Kubernetes, you know, once Kubernetes got to 1.0, That meant that, okay, the functionality 1.0 was good, but they still kept creating new concepts on top of Kubernetes that changed how you use Kubernetes, right? You know, you look at how you create a pod spec six months after the release of the 1.0, This is quite different. And I think with service measures, you'll see the same iteration as we find those patterns and get this working correctly.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I recently attended a training... Um, on istio and also they said uh, you know you, you you can start thinking about it in production mid 2019. <laughs> so. I've,
1: um, I've been giving so I think for the last two and a half years whenever someone said to me what about service meshes I said if you can they're really interesting I think logically it's the right answer for so many problems we face but the, the implementations are not mature yet wait six months and I keep saying wait six months. And so, yeah, wait for uh, <laughs> like the Now, what's been good is you're seeing lots of, there are lots of people moving into this space. I mean, console is moving into the, you know, HashiCorp moved into this space. Uh, you know, you could look at some of the stuff, um, Datawire are doing and thinking, you know, you know, is Ambassador, you know, what's happening there? Is that, is this, you know, it's, it's looking like a crowded world. Um, like some of the things that look like it could just be gateway proxies could for Kubernetes could also work inside of Kong. You know, why wouldn't you use Kong as a, so there's always different things happening. Um, but I think the deployment models and the fundamental architectures models have stabilized. The sidecar model sort of has won out. You know, deploying the proxy instance inside your pod of Kubernetes has won out as an architecture. And so I think that's been really helpful. And then the question is really going to be who can get to a good, virtuous offering? Uh, because the problem is, this isn't like if you don't like spring boot you could rip out spring boot of one service and replace it with something functionally equivalent and the impact is one service if you make a change in this space it's a lot more disruptive so um -hmm. i I think as a result i've been a bit more cautious with some of my clients and i said look, only if you've really got like you know so some of my clients that have more of a um that are maybe more risk adverse i've said just wait. Maybe for you, stick to a a known number of tech stacks and and pick a good framework that you like. Spring Boot being a good example. Just standardize on that. That might be a way around that. Or if you're more edgy and you're happy to take more risks, by all means, um, by all means, do take a look at um, look at Istio and see what it can do for you. Um, One of the fintech firms I know in the UK, I think, is in the process of switching from one service mesh to another. I know it's not been a very Smooth process. I'm interested. I'm going to catch up with them
0: and see what their sort of feedback's been on that um, on that process. Hmm. Yeah. To, to me, it sounds like you know the, the, all these systemic changes across your system is uh, is a very risky thing to do. And I'm just wondering, can can you introduce? You, you cannot introduce a service mesh partially, well, you, right? You
1: kind of. Can, I mean, you. That's... I mean, you you can, in as much as it, it, it can. I mean, firstly, you could have different clusters. Uh, I mean, secondly, you could set up your networking um, around that. So it is possible. But, of course, the benefit of service meshes actually does come from having everything on it. So, you know, you could have, yeah. okay, we're just going to put it in here and see what happens. But a lot of the benefits that you get, like managing, say, your your JOT tokens and mutual TLS and your correlation IDs across your whole infrastructure, that's great. Uh, like, I get some level of support for open tracing out of the box with Istio, right? That's great. But if I only implement Istio partially, I, only get, I don't get, the distributed tracing isn't going to work. So I think to get the maximal benefit you do, I think there is scope for doing it. And, and again, that's the kind of thing I would consider doing would be to say, uh, maybe I, I sort of, you know, thinking about uh, my sort of my pod deployment mechanism and the, my network layout, are, are there some couple places where I could maybe have, okay, we're going to say effectively have these, these uh, services running within a, within an Istio group. And then we'll just see how it works out. Um, but you're right. You won't get the full benefit from it. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, what I don't know, lots of people of course are not running vanilla Kubernetes. They're running, you know, they're running OpenShift or something like, you know, or, you know, or Ranch or whatever else. And, A lot of those people are sort of buying a package solution. Um, So eventually, I think those package solutions will include a a service mesh as well. Which one is it going to be? It's probably going to be Istio, right? um, And when, of course, where things get interesting is we're now looking at Knative, which I think will take a couple of years to mature as well, but that is, in effect, being built on top of Istio as well. So we better hope Istio is going to work, right? So there's a whole bunch of... um, uh, there's a whole bunch of things to, be, to to consider here i you know i think the uh i think we used to um you know certainly the java programmers and linux people like myself would often be a bit uh sort of raise our eyebrow at the pace of change in the javascript space and i think now the javascript people could quite rightly take a look in what's happening in the container orchestration deployment space advise, rate, and raise raise their own equally arched eyebrow at the uh, the amount of churn and stuff happening in that area um so uh, yeah, it, it, it's it's a bit of a wild ride trying to keep up with everything.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's true. A few years back, mesosphere was still a thing, and
1: I, yeah. yeah, it's, it's all it's, right. It's, and you go back, and and they weren't. I mean, mesosphere weren't wrong, in as what they built was really great tech, but it was really great tech that about ten people needed. Most of us don't run twenty thousand nodes. You know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um
0: you mentioned uh mm-hmm. mutual TLS uh, for processes talking to processes uh, I just want to briefly come back to it um so ca- can you briefly you know I- repeat what what mTLS uh, actually
1: is sure. so how it works I think many of the listeners will be familiar with TLS uh as in it's the S in HTTPS nowadays it is you know SSL is very much dead Um, so we use TLS as a way of of uh, providing a level of uh, safety certainty around HTTP based uh, communication so when you go to a a website you go to your bank hopefully your bank communicates over HTTPS they put their server out what that means is that they make available a certificate they says this This certificate says that this is really www.mybank.com. It's not somebody pretending to be mybank.com. And then your browser is able to validate that certificate and say that, yes, this is a real certificate. Um, And so that's the process for sort of what we talk about, you know, the the HTTPS everywhere movement has been happening. Chrome is, you know, now amongst other browsers are now starting to say if your public facing website doesn't have, uh, a certificate, we're going to start saying it's insecure, and you're probably aware of the public internet now. Mutual TLS takes that one step further. Now, with a normal public-facing website, I, you know, I just go to it and I will log in, and that's me. I'm logged in. The, H, you know, the certificate on the server side gives me, as a consumer, trust that the site I'm talking to is who I think they actually are. So they, you know, it's giving me some. It really is mybank.com. It gives me some other benefits in terms of making sure that the communication I send um, hasn't been intercepted or manipulated. So it stops things like man in the middle attacks. However, from the server's point of view, they don't have any real understanding as to who I am. They don't know if, you know, they don't get anything out of that handshake effectively that says, I am who I say I am, and that's why they do other things like checking my username and password to make sure I am who I say I am, or those sorts of things. With mutual TLS, not only does the server have a certificate, but the client also has a certificate. And so effectively, at the level of the transport, you're able to confirm sort of client and server authentication effectively. And so it's, you know, I know I'm talking to the server, the server knows it's an client, and you get some... And that's one level of trust that you can get between a client and server. And it's uh, if you're using HTTP-based communication, which you 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 would be if you're using, say, gRPC or HTTP, then you can uh, you can kind of implement uh, mutual TLS fairly easily. And uh, as I mentioned, uh, you you can also uh, some of the API gateways and the cloud providers will allow you to do that as well. It only
0: handles. It only handles program to program authentication from that point of view. It doesn't do anything about the the human being problem. Yeah, I mean for let's say for IoT devices, you know, I I know that you know you have to have it. Some mobile phones also need a client certificate. Um, I'm just wondering from. you know, when I'm in, when I have like two service in the two services in the same cluster, and Service A is talking to Service B, um, what's what's kind of the 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 things I have to think about to say Service A is only allowed to talk to Service B if Service A has a client. Uh,
1: for me, it's, again, it's, it's kind of stuff talks talked about earlier. It's down to sort of the threat model. What is it you're worried about? Um, because you might be happy enough with what the you know you might be happy enough to say that no malicious party can gain access to my network and that this cluster all the traffic has to go through a gateway and security and everything else so it really does come down to to your threat model and it's a balancing force right because the more painful and complicated this stuff is for you to implement the the more convinced you've got to be that it's a good idea if something's really really easy you just turn it on right so Traditionally, managing certificates was painful for, for server-side stuff and for client-side stuff. Um, you know, uh, trying to roll that infrastructure out with Puppet and Chef, for example, is always a bit of a pain. And so you needed a higher bar before you'd consider it. I think now we're running on platforms that make these things easier. And so I think it's shifting the points at which we think, yes, we'll do it. Um I think that's that's honestly that is a lot of what security application security is about. It's a trade-off of okay, how risky is this thing? How easy is it to stop that risk or reduce that risk? That's actually most of what threat modeling is really about. Is saying what are my risks? How could I reduce those risks? What's the cost of reducing that risk? Is it something we're going to do? Um, And I think as our technology Mm -hmm. gets better, Mm -hmm. things like mutual TLS become easier to implement. You think about what Let's Encrypt did uh, when Let's Encrypt first came out and, and sort of said, here's all, you know, let's make it easier for people to run their websites over HTTPS. Everyone got obsessed by the fact that these certificates they were issuing were free. The reality was that was not important. The important piece was the fact that they created an automated tool chain for creating and issuing those certificates. That was a kill, the killer thing because that reduced the cost, the ongoing cost of ownership of that process. Mm. Um, and and so I think as you reduce the cost of those things, it becomes more applicable to say yes, we should just do it. It just makes sense.
0: Mm.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, I have I have one uh, question left. Actually, um, you mentioned once the confused deputy problem uh, in, in that space. So. Uh,
1: what 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 is it? Uh, okay, so um, the confused deputy problem is 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 a sort of a generic problem that you can have. You talk about application security circles, but to give you a spec- but 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 to, to speak generically, a confused deputy is where you trick an intermediary party into asking for things that they shouldn't be able to ask for. Um. So uh, you you know you effectively dupe an intermediary into doing something they shouldn't do, and so um, and, and this comes up in the Microsoft situation when we consider the author- authorization part of the problem. So we talked about authentication. But we didn't talk about authorization, which is what what am I as a human being allowed to do? Um, and so the example is I go to the website and say. Of, a, of some like online, whatever, something matters. I said, can I see my user profile? And that request from my browser goes to a server ring and the server running on the server side says, okay, well, Sam wants to see his profile, but hang on a minute. I don't own Sam's details. You know, Sam's details are stored somewhere else. Another service looks after Sam's details. It's like another microservice. So I'm gonna go and fetch those. So what I may have done at this point is I've authenticated myself with that server. The server says, yes, you are, Sam. Sam's asking for details. Okay, well, I'm going to go and ask the user service for Sam's details. So when I go to the user service and say, I want Sam's details, you've got some questions to ask. So the first thing is, have we already made sure that, that I am allowed to ask for my own details? Who makes that decision? Do I make that decision upstream? Do I make that decision in the edge service, the perimeter? Do I put that in a gateway? Or do I have the downstream user service make that decision? Now, if you think about what happens as you break your architecture down to smaller and smaller pieces, um, it seems odd to me that you'll have an upstream centralized proxy-based system that knows every operation I might want to use. It seems it makes more sense to me for the user service to know what SAM is allowed to do because the user service contains all the functionality about user information or my order information or whatever else that might be. The issue is that once the service call ends up at that user service or that order service or that inventory service, that often what you've done is you've lost the context of who's making the request. So the user service gets a call that says, I want Sam's details. What the user service wants to be able to say is, okay, I know you, the program that made the call to me, I know you're a trusted program, but who are you asking on behalf of? Because my logic inside the user service says that I will give user details to the same to only to the same person. So if, if Sam asks the user details, he can have Sam's user details, but he can't have Alice's user details. And the user service has that logic in it. But to be able to deal with that process, it needs to know who is the request being made on behalf of. So effectively. It's not enough for the upstream server to establish trust that this is a trusted program talking to me. You also want to be able to pass the context of the originating call. Uh, effectively, it's like a, you, and this is what we use job tokens for, JWT tokens. And I, you can think of that much like a cookie state, effectively, but I pass some information downstream that says, this is the person that's asking, this is maybe the roles this person has or the groups this person is in. I'm now letting you the downstream server make a judgment call about whether or not this is allowed. Mm. And that's sort of one model for how you sort of solve the confused deputy problem and also push the logic around authorization into the microservices themselves. Um, And that avoids the need for centralized authorization models, sometimes which require additional round-tripping.
0: Okay. Thanks. <clears throat> so, um, did I did 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 I forget anything uh, important no, no, to I, ask?
1: I think, I um, I think we, we we did we got through quite a lot there. I think some of those, to be honest with you, you know, it's rare that I get into confused deputy with my with my clients because often they're much more basic things to deal with. You know, um, it, it when you're going through those threat modeling things, it's those sorts of concerns are sort of a long way down the list. They're, They're less likely to happen. You're less worried about them, and they're hard. There's more work to do to defend against them. It's often all the other things that you want to sort out first. You want to sort out your patching, your passwords, your credentials. Then you worry about your transport security, and then you might worry about your. You know, you should have have a bit of a prioritise this. So I think the just you know make do some threat modelling. There's loads of great stuff out there, like um, Stride and Dread. Microsoft have got loads of great information out there on this stuff. and I'm saying that as a Linux person, right? So um, I think you know, other than don't go don't don't necessarily go for the hard stuff, it is sometimes the less cool stuff that you want to focus on first. All right.
0: So um, Sam, thank you very much for being on the show. and um, yeah, this was uh, an episode from uh, Conversations about Software Engineering.
1: Thanks for having me.